Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a sophomore at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, an MSNBC analyst and also the author of The Watergate Girl. I also wear special pins to send a message to our audience. And today's pin is a ladybug because it is the state insect of Massachusetts. And today we welcome former Congressman Joe Kennedy III from Massachusetts. He served in Congress from 2013 to 2021 and was chosen to give the Democratic Party's response to former President Donald Trump in 2018's State of the Union address. Before being elected to Congress, Joe served in the Peace Corps, co-chaired his great uncle Senator Ted Kennedy's campaign, and served as assistant district attorney at the Cape and Islands offices and also the Middlesex office of the DA. Thank you for being here with us today, Joe. Okay, so Joe, we are really grateful to have you on with us. And I guess to start off the conversation, like the last names Bush and Clinton, um, the last name Kennedy is well known in politics. And, you know, you are the grandson of Robert F. Kennedy and the grandnephew of former President JFK and Senator um, Ted Kennedy. So I'm wondering first what it was like to grow up um, as a Kennedy. <laughs> uh, well, look, first off, thanks so much for having me. Um, thrilled to be here. And, you know, I, I get that question a lot. Um, the. Um, the part for me that I think sticks out most, Victor, um, is the fact that a lot of folks, I think for good or understandable reason, focus on the Kennedy part of the Kennedy family and they, they um, have a lot of questions about that. I, I've always focused on the second part of that, which was family. And the part that I, I think that I think people should know about my family is that it's a family and it's a big, noisy, large, loud group, but it's a family. And what it meant growing up in that is you always had people to play football with. You always had people to go play tag or capture a flag with. You always had um, people to run around and and had plenty of uh, elbows thrown over a Thanksgiving table. But what it meant was that when you wanted to celebrate, you had people that were there and celebrate your successes. And when you had those trials and those hard times and those, those disappointments, you had something that you knew that you could fall back on. And you had what, what my family, I think, most signifies to me and the incredible luxury that, that we have from it is that no matter what happens, and, and we've, as a family, have been through a lot, but you know that there's going to be something there that is there to catch you and steady you and make sure that we as a family will get through those times. And that more than anything else is an extraordinary and incredible gift. Um, and, you know, plenty of hazing that would happen around the Thanksgiving table when somebody brings back a significant other for the first time. And uh, what happens over the essentially de facto family reunions over July 4th, there's a huge family photograph every year. and. Um, no one is gracious about whether <laughs> that significant other should be in it or not. We just haze that person <laughs> relentlessly to, to make that choice. But um, a lot of good natured fun along the way. No, I, I'm so glad you clarified that for us because it seems like, you know, most people associate Kennedy with politics, but getting to know you and kind of the more familial aspect, I think will kind of give more context for our listeners. And I'm wondering, you know, because you're 
the grandnephew of former President JFK and also Senator Ted Kennedy. Did you ever feel like a sense of civic duty when you grew up or like did that push you ever to enter politics? Was it because of the people around you who, who I guess, influenced you to, be, to go into politics at all? No, and I think that's also uh, a common misconception. I appreciate the question. Um, so I think a couple things there, right? Um, as best as I can can articulate it, Victor. So one, look, I think being a member of my family on the one hand, you might be a bit more predisposed to putting yourself out there for elective office for the one reason that it's not as foreign to me or members of my family as it probably is for almost anybody else, right? My, when I was growing up, my dad was in office. We, I met plenty of other members of the house or senator governors or whatnot because they were the people my dad worked with, right? Just like you would meet your parents' coworkers or you would have a relationship with them or whatever else. I met my dad's coworkers. They just happened to be, have a, a congressional title in front of them. But it meant that, it meant that what I would think of as something like crazy, you know, oh my gosh, how could you ever go play professional sports, right? That is a completely foreign thing to me. It's probably not that foreign to somebody whose dad played in the NFL or played in the basketball uh, NBA, right? This wasn't something quite as foreign to me as it might be for other people. So one, you were a bit more predisposed to it. But I think from anybody that has served in elected office knows is that one, it is an extraordinary honor, and it is, and that is true 100%. Second, though, is that it it takes a lot out of you, um, and it doesn't ask, it just takes. And it takes you out of you as a candidate, it takes you, it out of you as a human being, it takes you out of you as a, as a member of a family, as a husband, as a dad, as a mom, um, as a partner. And it requires your entire family give um, in ways in which you, you can't really understand until you're in it. And so the person that pushed me hardest not to run for office was actually my dad, who spent himself 12 years in office, because he made it clear to me that if you're doing this because you think you should, or you think it's expected of you, or you think that this is somehow some convoluted idea of a, a quote unquote family business, it is the worst reason to run for office and you're gonna hate it, it's gonna be miserable and you're gonna lose. Um, you have to do this because you want to do it and it is worth you you believe in it enough to be worth the sacrifice because you are going to have to ask the people that you care about most to sacrifice some of the things that they care about most which is time in order for you to to engage in this profession um and so that's perhaps a, a longer more convoluted answer than you were expecting but it's for, I think for anybody that has had the honor and again, privilege of serving in office, and it is that, but there's no romanticizing about what it requires of those who hold office as well. We talked with Manhattan DA Cy Vance Jr., who like you comes from a family well-known in politics. And he mentioned that he wanted to be independent of what his dad, Secretary of State Cy Vance was known for. He wanted to form his own brand and appeal. Did you have that same feeling? I think, um, Jill, it's a great question. I think anybody that's in uh, elective office, well, I'll put it this way, I, I would hope that most folks are in elective office are in there for the right reasons and they're from my perspective to serve and to serve your constituents, to serve the public. Um, I, <laughs> I come from a, a long line of individuals that I think have actually done that very well and have done it at, at the highest levels and have done it for a significant period of time. 
And so the challenge there Joe, is that they set the bar pretty high. Um, and so no matter what I did, I, I came to the realization just early on in my, my professional career that trying to compare yourself or to some extent, you know, carve a, a wholly separate independent pathway, get outside of somebody's shadow there for the sake of getting outside somebody's shadow was if you were in the office to try to do that, that you were going to be chasing that, um, that journey, that goal, that, that kind of apparition the entire time that you were there. The important part of it is that you're there to do what you're there to do, which is serve the people you're there to serve and to use the powers that you have as an elected official. And for me as a member of Congress, than to help people that needed that assistance. I happen to think that my uh, family members did that very well, but to be associated with um, other family members that have done that well, uh, is obviously a great honor. Yes, I, I, and we would certainly agree with you about the history of, of your family. Um, they were among my first heroes in politics, for sure. Um, and, but another interesting aspect of your background is that you went to the Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic uh, for two years after you graduated from Stanford. And we coincidentally just talked to Chris Matthews, who felt that his Peace Corps experience was very important in his life. And so I, I wanted to talk to you about that experience as well. It's, it's one that is one of the missing parts of my life is that I never was in the Peace Corps. I know it's not too late yet, maybe. Maybe it's still my future, but talk about that and talk also about why you picked the Dominican Republic. Um, so uh, I would agree with, with Chris that um, without question, my time in the Peace Corps was the most important formative experience, uh, professional experience I've ever had. Um, I wouldn't have run for office without it. It solidified my desire to go to law school. It had a huge impact on my activities at law school and, and legal aid and my efforts in addressing this inequities in our justice system, particularly our civil justice system, um, which gets uh, overlooked far too often. Um, and it, there's not a day that went by while I was in office where I didn't draw on that experience and not just the language skills and the ability to, to, to speak uh, Spanish, but what happens when you are put far outside your comfort zone, when you have to, in order to try to understand the challenges, the pressures, the experiences that others are, are going through, which if you're trying to build a coalition and enact legislation, you have to try to do. You have to try to figure out how you are going to attract others that don't necessarily come at things the same way you do to be part of a solution. Um, and that means understanding and seeing and interpreting things through a different, um, perhaps a different point of view, a different perspective, a different lens. And that's what, um, at, at its core, Peace Corps is is all about. So it was a, a had a huge impact on me and I continued to, um, to fall back on that experience and um, hold it close. It, well, in addition to the language that you uh, perfected while you were there, um, and which I'm sure is helpful in politics, uh, did it help in building bipartisanship in Congress? I'm just wondering, because you were talking about how you learned about other cultures and uh, working together. It, it did in a couple of respects. Um, 
So not necessarily in terms of, hey, I spent time in the Dominican Republic. Are there, were there other obvious Republican constituencies that you could pull together? Not, not that way. But in terms of mm. the recognition that if you were going to take on big um, systemic inequities, because in where I was in the Dominican Republic, like many places in, in the developing world, that were poverty stricken. And they were that way, f not by accident, there was a reason. And so when you're trying to alleviate those structures, you have to change the status quo and you're gonna have to go up against forces that benefit from and profit from that inequity. And so you have to figure out how you're going to pull together a coalition that is going to try to actually change and address those structures. Um, and that, um, that was a core lesson to the Peace Corps. And it was also a core lesson to then your mm -hmm. time in office to try to figure out, okay, well, I, I know I can frame this issue this way and perhaps get a progressive uh, members of my, my party on board. But particularly during my, most of my time in the House of Representatives where I was in the minority, that wasn't gonna be enough. I needed to get Republicans on board if I wanted to pass a bill. And if you take the perspective that, hey, we're up against major challenges and in, in people that are suffering and we want to alleviate it, it's not enough for me to say, I'll wait until Democrats are in control of the House of Senate and presidency as we are now. But I'm willing to wait four, five, six, eight years until that time and just say, you're going to have to suffer until we get that perfect solution. I, I, I didn't think it was right to tell people to wait. So if that's the case, you got to go out and find ways to, to, to think about or to formulate or to recast that problem in a way in which people that have a different perspective would be willing to come on board and help help push their solution. And that kind of fundamental aspect to um, to the Peace Corps had enormous implications for Paul. And would you advise Victor's generation and Victor to consider the Peace Corps as a step after graduation? I would tell, um, I would recommend it to anybody. Um, and look, it's not, it's not for everybody, but whether it was a Peace Corps experience for me or some experience that gets you outside your comfort zone, some experiences is going to change and challenge the way that you do mm -hmm. things. I, you know, when I was in office, I would get a, an awful lot of extraordinarily talented, um, incredibly accomplished and, and impressive young folks like Victor that would ask for whatever reason would come to me for career advice for, for some unknown, uh, unknown reason uh, to begin with. But I would always try to tell them or advise them that the next important shiny bullet point on a resume isn't in the grand scheme of things going to make uh, a whole lot of difference in the trajectory of your life. What is going to make a difference is an experience that creates a passion for you to pursue a vocation. Right. And one that is going to motivate you enough to get through the harder, more challenging times in whatever job that is, right? Doctors obviously make an enormous impact on any, every single person they, they touch every single day. Med school residency is a grind, right? There's, there's, it's hard. Being a member of Congress, you have the ability to impact legislation for 330 million people in the most powerful country in the world. You can have an enormous impact on folks. Running campaigns and grinding through all night marathon bills and the fundraising calls and the handshakes and the retail politics that the job requires in order for you to do that. There's parts of it that are amazing. There are parts of it that are not. Um, 
And so you have to have something <laughs> inside you that will power you through the, the harder uh, parts of a job that are not romantic, that are not, um, that are a grind and that are gritty. And that, uh, for me anyway, a lot of that was illuminated in the Peace Corps. And I think for a lot of people, um, they have a similar experience. Terrific advice. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And you, so you earned your law degree from Harvard in 2009, and then you served as um, an assistant district attorney in two different offices in uh, Massachusetts until 2011 when you resigned to run for Congress. I guess if you could just um, explain for our listeners, I guess, what made you decide to run um, at that moment? And then um, I guess for why you left um, your position as um, assistant district attorney um, to run for office? Yeah, so um, it's a great question. One, I left the DA's position because I had to in order to run. You couldn't do both. Um, but so that, that, that part's easy. Um, the, I think what most folks probably don't understand is that my, my time in a, as a prosecutor's office in the prosecutor's office was instrumental to my decision to run for office. And so, look, I was an entry level prosecutor. I was there for, in those two offices for about two and a half years or so, um, which, you know, a line ADA, so assistant district attorney, you are, Kind of the lowest level, I would liken it to, and, and the emergency room doctors would probably not appreciate this comparison, but the emergency room or the criminal justice system, right? <laughs> Anything that comes through those doors, you have to deal with. If it's all that serious, it gets up to, you know, somebody else that specializes in, you know, assaults or, you know, sex crimes or whatever else, right? But you got to be able to deal with mostly the triage, right? And you are way overworked and way underpaid and you have really long hours and it's just chaos every single day, right? Um, but you learn how to manage that chaos. And so very much like my interpretation of obviously an emergency room, right? Much of the type of crimes I was dealing with at that point, Victor, were actually, they were drug crimes. Um, and many of them were um, not necessarily the buying and selling, but it was the property crimes or physical crimes that came with addiction um, and particularly opioids. Mm -hmm. So pills, Percocet, Oxycontin, this would have been back in 2009, 2010, in the midst of an opioid epidemic that was at that point kind of taking hold across the country. So, um, and then the crimes that would come with that after people were addicted because they would start at pills, Percocet, Oxycontin for uh, Oxy, would, Oxy 80 would go for about $80 a pill. Somebody has a four or five pill a day habit, that's four or $500 a day that they have to come up with in order to satiate that habit and that addiction. Or they move off to heroin that was $5 a bag. And you could see literally the economics incentives in our system that would push young people that were, had tried something at a party or literally had been in a car accident or had a sporting injury or whatever else. And now all of a sudden, not only are they committing petty crimes that are graduating to more serious crimes, but now literally the economics of it are pushing people to heroin addiction. And after you're addicted to heroin, you're in recovery, obviously, for the rest of your life. And it's one of the hardest um, recoveries and addictions to be able to break um, that we have. And I saw a criminal justice system that a society literally that essentially criminalized illness, that criminalized addiction. And rather than actually intervening further upstream to try to make sure that you were not prescribing those opioids or engaging in diversion programs or trying to get people actually healthy, rather than just saying, hey, you know, if you're committed a crime, we're gonna lock you up and, and for as long as you possibly can. And both of my both of the people I worked for, a Democrat and a Republican, both took the same approach, which said, your goal here as a prosecutor is not to lock somebody up for as long as possible. It's to make sure they don't commit another crime. 
And so if they're addicted, it's to try to use the tools that you have to try to make sure you address the addiction, which you had some tools in Shuba, but you didn't have nearly enough. And after folks are addicted to heroin, that's a, again, that's a really hard addiction to break. And so what we needed to do was to shift that focus from essentially one of punishment to one of prevention. And that shift couldn't come within a prosecutor's office because that's not that's not wholly for a call for a prosecutor to make. Those are the laws and structures of our society. And that's what policymakers, that's what lawmakers are literally supposed to do. And so I, one of, it was a, one of the central reasons and one of the, the central themes that I ran on my first race in 2012 was about how we needed to recalibrate the investment and the structures in our public health system and our criminal justice system um, upstream to address the massive challenge and crisis we have in mental behavioral health, which I was honored to be able to, to lead on when I was in Congress, but clearly um, today is, it was an epidemic before COVID and it's gonna be a crisis that we're dealing with for, for years, if not decades to come. So, I mean, that, that's such a good reason for why you decided to run. It was because of your role and your experience as um, assistant district attorney. I'm wondering, because so your father, you said that your father didn't want you to run for office. So what was that experience like running for office and actually kind of getting elected? What did you feel in that moment? So I, I wouldn't say he didn't want me to run because he supported me wholeheartedly after I made the decision to run. He just pushed me very hard not to because he wanted to make sure it was something that I personally wanted to do um, because mm. Victor, people can tell when your heart's not in it. And if your heart's not in it, they're going to wonder why you're running. Um, and if they're wondering why you're running and you're wondering why you're running, it's brutal. Um, and so it was a gut check to me to say, Hey, you better want this because what you're about to put yourself, when you put yourself out there and make yourself that vulnerable, you need to be able to, to, um, to fight through the scrutiny and the, the questions and the relentlessness that comes with, with a campaign. Um, look, when, when you win, it's amazing. Um, and I think every person that has had the honor to serve in, in federal office will long remember their, their moments where they get sworn in, um, being on the house floor, taking those tours for the first time, um, walking through those buildings and the sense of, um, the humility that you feel when you, you're walking on the house floor the first time and you kind of think of who else was there and, and the issues that have been debated in that space and, and the opportunity that you have to try to uh, bring the voice of your constituents to those debates. Uh, it's challenging when you first get there because the place moves so fast, probably contrary to popular belief, but it moves so fast that you're trying just to literally figure out where the bathrooms are and not screw up some vote and not get lost on your way from the hearing that you were at to the, the house floor or anything else. And they didn't exactly design those buildings to make that part easy. So it can, it, it is easy to get lost in the, the craziness and the chaos of the day. Um, but it was always one of the, the parts that I, uh, I miss now is kind of after those late nights um, on the house floor and going back to your office and, and working through, um, you know, longer portions of the night when you're walking out um, late in the evening and you're one of the only, only folks around um, just kind of sensing for a second where you are and, and the work that's being done. And it's, look, it's hard work. It's a grind. Um, and there's plenty of days where you, get up well before six and you go to bed after midnight and you feel like you've been on a uh, treadmill at 10 miles an hour and you've been sprinting all day long. 
and the view looks awfully similar when you get off the thing than when you do when you get on it. But you know what I would tell folks is welcome to democracy, right? It, it takes a while um, to get that progress, but progress we shall. So during your time in Congress, um, you ended up being selected by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to give the response to Donald Trump's 19, I'm sorry, to President Trump's 2018 State of the Union address. And is that, I, I don't know how this happens. Did you have to campaign to get that assignment? And if not, how do you get selected for that? I have no idea how you get selected for that, but I, I know that I was. And no, I, I <laughs> most certainly did not campaign for it. Um, I was incredibly honored to be able to be uh, to be selected um, to do it. It was certainly one of uh, one of the highlights of, of my time in, in public office. Um, uh, Jill, I've been around politics long enough to know that for most folks who give that speech, it's pretty much a career ender. Um, so it is a it is a hard speech to do well, um, <laughs> and it is a hard task to to try to get right. Um, and in part because you're following the president of the United States, who was addressing the entire nation and this extraordinary auditorium with the House of Representatives that is packed with hundreds of people, the, both House and Senate and diplomatic corps, Supreme Court, you literally can't get a, a it is the highest uh, kind of amount of political theater you can have in this country. And then you got to follow him. And you don't get a copy of the speech. You don't know exactly what he's going to say. You can guess, but <laughs> you got to try to craft something that is going to say, hey, you just heard this hour long speech from the president of the United States. Here's an alternative um, narrative out there that, that he left out. Um, and so, no, I certainly didn't campaign for it. I was stunned when when Speaker Pelosi asked me to um, to give the address. I obviously was honored and said yes. And then I quickly went, oh, my God, how do I make sure I have a career the, the, the day after. Um, so we survived through it, which I, I'm grateful for, and we put a lot of work into, but um, uh, it was it was obviously a thrill. Well, talk about that preparation, because this is a plum assignment. You have probably the biggest audience you will ever have, or maybe not ever, but up to that point, it's a huge audience. Mm -hmm. How do you prepare for that? So, um, I can tell you what we did, what I did, which was, um, well, I said, it's not like you get an advanced copy of the president's speech, obviously, but you have a pretty good idea of what right. um, the president is going to try to tout his accomplishments um, and give a, a particular narrative as to what he has achieved over the, his time in office. I have felt with, with President Trump that there was a very different narrative that he had actually helped put forward that um, or he'd helped create, which was not a positive one, which was pitting basically American against American and saying your success comes at the expense of somebody else. In order for me to rise, you must fall. And this kind of inherent then ranking about human worth and dignity. And Joe, I had given kind of versions that that speech from the way I conceptualize it, I had given the first half of it at one point and I'd given the second half of it at one point. And what I basically did is I wanted to, to bring them together and um, kind of fully flesh out that 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 argument and that articulation as to how the president was measuring success and the metric that he was bringing to uh, a country by saying not, hey, how do we as a government find a way to have a tide lift all boats, which we have struggled with because this tide has not risen equally for everybody. But what he f reformulated was to say, literally success is zero sum. 
And so in order for me to su succeed, you must fail. And that is a fundamentally, from my perspective, un-American um, uh, articulation of what our country can be. And so, you know, look, I also wasn't an executive. I hadn't been in office for, for all that long. I didn't think it was appropriate for me to, as some have, kind of take that platform and say, hey, here's what I have done or here's what I my vision for mm -hmm. the country is. It was saying, hey, here's as a somebody that is trying to articulate a response for a Democratic Party um, and for our country. Here's what this alternative can look like. And here's what here's what you didn't hear the president say. And here's what we as a country have to wrestle with um, and make that a uh, an articulation of a common vision and a common challenge ahead. And, and I very well remember your zero sum game. Uh, argument and also some of the criticism that you leveled, rightly so, I think, at uh, President Trump and the Department of Justice and what was happening in civil rights um, and the loss of protections that we need to protect, something that today is maybe even more uh, challenging than it was then. Um, so thank you for what you said and how well you delivered that. Um, in 2020, you ran against incumbent Senator Ed Markey, and I'm wondering what led you to enter that race to step away from your job in Congress as a representative and then to throw your name in the hat for, um, uh, for, the set, for a senator. And uh, did you have a strong desire for that role because you were criticized for not being able to um, articulate why you were running um, at all or kind of what was your experience like during that race? So the race obviously didn't turn out as I was hoping for, and that's uh, obviously deeply disappointing. I um, give the senator credit for um, for his success and, and wish him well and, and his continued uh, service in the United States Senate. Um, look, I, I think that there was, um, at this time and in, in this moment, there um, needed to be stronger leadership from uh, our United States senators in Massachusetts that was connected to the communities that we serve, um, giving voice to all of those communities uh, across um, Massachusetts with uh, regards to obviously race, ethnicity, geography, income, and channeling that effort into um, a really strong, present and, and designated and, and focused leadership in the Senate. Um, and look, I was honored to be able to, to, um, to make that case to the people of Massachusetts. It was a frustrating race for uh, a variety of reasons. And, you know, you learn an awful lot from the races that you, you run where you, you win. You learn more lessons, I think, where you fall short. Um, but um, I do think that we've also seen in a Democratic Party at the moment that primaries can, um, I think, if run on, on principle and run hard and run well, can help um, ignite a, a fire under whether they're challenger or incumbent to make sure that your constituents are getting every last ounce of energy and effort that, that they should be getting, particularly in those roles of, of such prominence and importance. And again, congratulate the Senator on, on the race and, and wish him well. I know that right now that you are uh, a commissioner um, on a very important program at the White House, and I wanted to maybe have you describe that very briefly, but even more importantly that, than that is, what else are you doing now and what are your future plans? <laughs> um, so my father-in-law, who's a minister, um, uh, told me once, we make plans and God laughs. So um, we'll see. We'll see what those plans are. <laughs> uh, I am fortunate to be able to stay active on a lot of the issues and causes that I care about, from poverty 
uh, to mental health, um, climate um, supporting uh, organizations, either as a senior advisor at the Poor People's Campaign or special advisor at the Poor People's Campaign, a member of the Woodwell Research uh, Climate Research Institute, one of the pioneering um, climate research centers here um, in, uh, in the United States. Um, uh, I'm a board member of uh, the Mass Association, Massachusetts Association for um, Mental Health. Um, so the, a number of the issues that I, I focused on in, in Washington, I, I continue to stay active on um, supporting organizations that are driving some of that social change as well, Emerson Collective, uh, California and, and, and such. And so excited about that work and trying to use the skills that I was able to develop in, in my time in Congress and, and bring them to the organizations that are still trying to push for that, that structural change. Um, one of the organizations that I've been thrilled and honored to be able to participate in is the White House Fellows Program. Um, so as a commissioner, as a commissioner, um, not not a White House fellow. Um, the folks that have applied for those positions are far, far more impressive. Um, and uh, Jill, just some of the most remarkable young men and women, or younger men and women than uh, I have ever seen, had the honor to meet and come across in my entire life. Um, and uh, it reinvigorates your hope and expectation for this country when you see the level of talent that is out there and the dedication that they have to trying to bring their talents to address um, some of the pressing challenges we confront as a country and, and as a planet. Well, I understand what you said about plans and God laughing at them, but I have to ask one more time, do you think you might run for office again? Uh, no plans to do that, like none whatsoever. I'm 40 years old, we'll, we'll see what the future brings. But um, I'm enjoying a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old at this point that um, I've been gone for over a third of their lives. So uh, spending a little bit more time at home is, uh, is great uh, for the moment. Um, obviously, look, I think uh, government has um, an important role to play in people's lives. And I think we can and, and need to address uh, some of the structural inequities and uh, that we see persists throughout our society and governments the way you're going to you're going to do that. Um, so we'll see. But um, really grateful for the opportunity. Um, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much for you being very here. much. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks. Victor, one of the things I found really fascinating was not just the personality and charisma of uh, Joe Kennedy, but also his comments about why he ran for office initially and how clear he was in how his past experiences, both in the Peace Corps and in the DA's office and the opioid crisis, impacted him and led him to say, I can do something about this by running for office. That, that was really interesting. And I think just kind of one of our questions was, relating it back to one of our episodes with Cy Vance, whose father was Secretary of State, and how he wanted to be independent from his father. And uh, Joe Kennedy, it was interesting, because at the beginning he said that um, he didn't want to uh, be attached to that family name, or, he, or I guess he didn't want to be associated with that um, when he ran for office. He wanted to run because of his passion and because of um, what he wanted to do uh, for his constituents. And I think this is probably a broader lesson for, for young people, is just, you know, if you're looking to run for office, take it from Joe Kennedy, you have to be passionate and know why you're running or else your constituents will doubt it, you know, the people who you're, uh, you're you know, uh, opposition will doubt it. And so I think it's really important to have that passion, also that really clear vision as to why you're running. Um, Joe, what was, uh, what did you think of his whole segment about running? And, and I guess, um, have you ever run for office? I don't think we ever talked about that before. Well, the only thing I ever ran for um, in terms of a campaign was as a Biden delegate. Uh, that's um, 
that was my first public office. I mean, I've been nominated for and elected to um, offices within many boards and organizations that I've been part of. But no, I've, I've had no political uh, <laughs> goals in my life and don't intend to run for any political office, partly because I like being able to advise the person who's in office and not have to make political compromises. I want to say what I think is right. And that's not a good um, characteristic for someone who, in politics, has to make compromises in order to get anything done. But you know what you want to do, and I think that was the lesson that um, Joe yes. Kennedy was trying to get through, is you have to know why you're running for office, and it's tough. Um, and you know, based off of my experience just running for delegate, that, that, was a, that was an interesting moment and one that I will never forget. But I think for our younger listeners, definitely. I mean, there are lots of up-and-coming stars, and knowing the why is really important. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we did and that you will come back for another episode. Please follow us and you can listen anywhere that you get your podcasts or watch us on YouTube.